Welcome to episode three of Recovering, where we talk with some of New Zealand's top journalists about the one big story from their career that has most impacted them personally and professionally. I'm Petra Vegas from Media Chaplaincy New Zealand. Now, there is always more to a news story than what we see, and behind every story is a person telling the story. So, throughout Recovering, broadcaster and chaplain, Reverend Frank Ritchie, is joined by journalists to unpack those stories that have shaped and changed them. In this episode, Frank talks with Radio New Zealand investigative reporter, Guyan Espiner. In a career spanning almost 30 years, Guyan has worked as a print journalist with the Sunday Star Times, as political editor for TVNZ, investigative reporter for TV3, and as co-anchor of RNZ's Morning Report. Today, he talks with Frank about the story he broke in 2020 of inhumane treatment of prisoners at Auckland Women's Prison. Guy and Espiner, thank you for taking the time to come into this uh, humble little studio here and have a chat about your career and uh, the story about Auckland Women's Prison that came out in November that has obviously had a big impact on you that we're going to talk about shortly, but thank you. Thanks for having me. Your career spans quite a long time and you've done, when I say you've done everything, not as in there's nothing left to do, so you might as well quit. You've done everything in that you've covered all mediums. You've done print, you've done television radio, now all of them kind of at once. Out of any of those, have you got any favourites? Not really. I mean, they, they are such different mediums. And I made a decision a little while ago that I'm going to stick with, with journalism and storytelling all my life. I think there comes a point where you go, gee, am I going to go into management and, and get a real job? Um, am I going to go into the business world or do something else? And I decided a few years ago, no, I'm going to be a journalist, a storyteller of some type for the rest of my life, as long as people will have me. And so within that, there's scope to move around. And I love how different that is. I love uh, writing and the power uh, of constructing a story and playing with words and trying to invoke emotions uh, through print. And it's a great medium for detail. Fantastic for detail. Radio, not so good for that, you know, fine point detail, but amazing, obviously, for audio and for what people are saying and grabbing emotion. And we get now into podcasts, which is a new medium mm. where you've got narrative storytelling fr- from that and and sound effects and, and emotion and pacing and, and uh, all those things. And then you look at television, which is an incredibly powerful medium. And you do long form interviews and you can see the whites of someone's eyes and you can see how they reacted when you asked them a question you know if you're looking at a story about a volcano or an earthquake you can't beat television for that you got you I want to see what's going on so so they're all so different and they're all so powerful when you deploy the the mechanisms of each medium so it isn't a cop-out to say oh I like all of them that they're just so different and what I love about um, the 2020s in journalism is the genuine multimedia aspect of mm. that we all are having to write to broadcast to video um, right now you and I are talking and I think there's a camera somewhere here yeah there's a camera right there <laughs> filming everything that we're saying yeah I'm curious then, the catalyst for getting to that point where you thought, okay, real job, 
management, whatever, uh, journalism. What was the catalyst for, can you remember what the catalyst was for that? Getting turned down for a job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seriously, a few years ago, um, RNZ was setting up a, an investigative unit. I put my hand up for the management job there. The thing didn't really work out. And in the interview process, um, I was hosting Morning Report at the time. Um, this will be news to some people. Um, I put my hand up for that job. And in that process, which was a good one, and we went through the proper recruitment process and it was all very formal and stuff, I kind of realised, hey, look, this isn't the trajectory for you. And I'd gone away and done an Institute of Directors course as well and, and, and sort of put my toe into the business world because I am fascinated in business. I got that love through politics, that, that convergence of, of, of that stuff. And I got a lot of respect for people who, who, who go into the business world. Um, and I'm interested in the economy. And so I was thinking that as the years clicked by um, and the dark hairs were uh, <laughs> replaced by the grey ones, that I might go down that track. And so it was about then that I made that decision, like that that was a bit of a sign, like, hey, you know, th- th- this is the fork in the road. Um, if I'd been given that job, I probably would have gone down that path. I'm glad I didn't get it. Mm. And I'm very glad that I am sitting here today as a as a practising working Reporter. I call myself a reporter too now, nowadays. You know, I'm a reporter. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you didn't get it because you've told some important stories uh, and your space in the landscape of New Zealand journalism, I think, is really important for a number of reasons, which I think we'll touch on as we go through uh, this story. So, the story that we're going to dive into with the Auckland Women's Prison, we asked, every journalist has been asked, uh, what story has had the biggest personal and professional impact on you? I'm fascinated that Paula Penfold chose one that was the most recent for her. This story is really recent for you when you could have picked from a whole number of stories over the years. So why this one? This is a story about redemption, which I think is a really interesting concept. Um, And, I, you know, why did I pick this one? Now, because I think I've changed as a person, and I think the stories that I've 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 told uh, have changed as well. I mean, just a quick bit of background to to this. In the big lockdown of 2020, I started looking at how they were treating prisoners in the lockdown, and found that in some cases, um, prisoners in men and women's prison were not being allowed out of their cells at all for sometimes 24 hours a day. And I thought, this isn't too good. It actually breaches the law. So we got quite into that and I did a number of stories around that. And out of that initial investigation, I started to concentrate on the women's prison because I had some sources who were giving me information about that. And then I came across the story of, of Mihi Bassett and Karma Cripps. But Mihi Bassett is the main woman in this story. And her, and in fact several women, were treated appallingly, really, in, in the prison. They were, they were gassed with pepper spray in their cells. They were made to perform humiliating rituals just in order to be fed. Uh, they were denied some basic toiletries and just treated in a way that we wouldn't consider, um, you know, respected their human rights in, in New Zealand. And as I followed this story through and looked into her background, yeah, she'd, she'd had a tough background. She, she'd, um, and it says in the story, you know, she was raped as a teenager. She had a, a really tough upbringing. She had some really bad luck. But you could tell there was this resilience. And I got to talk to her a couple of times. She added me to her uh, prison phone system and I talked to her through a lawyer as well. And I was able to follow the story, break the news of these conditions and follow the story through, which ended with a review of the way women are treated in prison by Calvin Davis. That, that So that was a big result from that. And I also watched Mihi Bassett in the court 
in the Manukau District Court in South Auckland, and the judge said to her, you know, you have had a really tough life, you deserve better than this, I want you to finish your sentence and come out and look after your family. And it was redemption, in a word, in some ways. Um, The family were there, they were very proud of her. This was someone who, I think, for one of the first times in her life, was listened to by authority and not just treated as a sort of nameless prisoner. And that had a big impact on me emotionally. I was, I think I managed to fight back the tears, but possibly not. Uh, you know, I was sitting in court going, wow, this is a really big moment. And often you don't get that in journalism. You know, you don't get the result. Um, and you don't see that through. And this was an occasion where I genuinely felt not only have we told a compelling story, but we have helped bring about change, I guess. So that's why I... I I single this one out. Yeah, we put a line on the table in Paula's interview on episode one of this podcast where another journalist had talked about journalism being an act of hope in the future and reflected that often you don't get to see the redemption play out, but there's a hope that as you involve yourself in the story and the story gets out, that eventually that arc of justice that Martin Luther King Jr. talks about will eventually play out. But you got to experience it right there. Yeah, and in the face of the narrative, if you like, I mean, you know, New Zealand's still a fairly punitive culture, you know, and this woman and, and her mates did, did some bad stuff. They broke into someone's house in an act of revenge and beat some people up and stuff, you know. I mean, people do bad things. And so we tend to have quite a retribution streak in New Zealand. And some people genuinely believe wrongly that people are supposed to be punished in prison. They aren't. I mean, that's the punishment. You're sent for prison. Your liberty is taken away from you. You're not there to then <laughs> be subject to, to, to punishment on a, on, a, on a daily basis. And we hope um, to have a rehabilitation where you get a second chance or, or more and that there is good in you. And so it was nice to be able to to tell a story and to get some public reaction from that. Yeah, there were some haters who came and said, well, she, you know, she did bad things, she should be there. And no one's denying she shouldn't be in prison. Um, she doesn't deny that and the family don't deny that. But did she deserve to be treated like that? No, she didn't. Mm. Why does redemption matter to you then? Because there are lots of people who could look at the story and go, exactly what the haters have said. She gets gassed in her cell. The, her partner is put in isolation for longer than she should be, has mental health issues, and there's so many problems that come from that. They'll just go, exactly what the haters have said. Well, she deserves it because she's done bad things. Why does a redemptive story matter to you? Because... We are all fallible, and I look at my own experience, which is, you know, I think pretty privileged. I know that word triggers some people nowadays, and I get that. But, you know, I mean, I grew up in a a, a good home with money and with resources, and I make lots of mistakes. And I just try every now and again and put myself in someone's shoes and go, gee, life's pretty hard, and, you know, I've made a lot of mistakes and things that I, I shouldn't have done or handled things badly, what would it be like to have all those things rained against you? Um, how would I do? You know, and mm. so I do look at other people and go, "Gee, you know that that must have been pretty tough." And when, when was the last time someone gave you a break? You know, and I look I look back at her record, and I saw a lot of good stuff. You know, she she was learning pipiha, she was learning about her history in Whakapapa, and she's learning Te Reo Māori, and she's into Kapahaka, and 
you know, trying to do all these good things. And so you, you can see, hey, there's a big streak of good in you, but when was the last time someone gave you a break? Mm. And so that's why it matters to me. And also because, and you mentioned um, Martin Luther King, and I'm not sure I'll probably get that, that quite wrong, but it might not have been him, but that concept that, you know, an injustice in one place is an injustice for all of us. Mm. I'm not sure um, who to source that back to. But I think it's true. And so often you can take a story that, Okay, it's just one woman who just, you know, in an isolated case, but I think the principle of that is is more profound than that and, and, and more wide-reaching. Yeah, yeah. I personally hold to the idea that none of us are islands, that uh, when one person is hurting, we all hurt in some way. And I think our prisons are symptomatic of a nationwide trauma playing out. I mean, these two people in your story, Mihi Bassett and Karma Cripps, are two examples of trauma. That plays out in our prisons so often, and yet here we are thinking that these people should be punished without addressing the trauma that's going on in their lives. And the people who normally wouldn't have their story told. So I see something important in your job there. Well, I think that you've hit on a good point that I was, was going to mention. Often they don't have a voice. And we make it very hard practically. To, we're not allowed to interview prisoners and put their interviews on the radio. I mean, Americans do a lot of things badly, but one of the things they do do well is freedom of speech, and they often interview uh, inmates. You, you talk to journalists, you can talk to them, but if you broadcast if you broadcast an interview, you're actually breaking the law if, if you do it without corrections consent. So literally, we, we strip their voices away. Um, there was a time, and that's been repealed now, I think, that, that they weren't allowed to vote. Um, and so you're really saying, you know, are we going to strip these people of any hope of getting back into the real world? Mm. Are we going to do that? And that's particularly cruel to deny hope, I think. Mm. With that restriction on what you can and can't do with prisoners in terms of telling their story, how did you get the story then? You mentioned sources earlier. Don't want to give away any sources, but w- walk us through the mechanics of how this story comes about. Yeah, well, I, I, I can name uh, a key person um, in this because we, we did uh, quote her in some of the subsequent stories, Hannah Kim, who uh, was a lawyer working out of South Auckland who represented these women, and man, she did a great job. And she was instrumental in, in having this story told, and she went above and beyond. I mean, funnily enough, I mean, th- these women were... were had burned some prison property, and so corrections and the police took them to court and thought, "Oh, well, we're going to we're going to we're going to add some time to these women's sentences," and and the thing completely rebounded on them, and they ended up with an entire review of the of the way they're supposed to handle prisoners, especially in the, in the women's prison. So that didn't go so well. But the lawyer was instrumental and and very helpful and, and very brave and and very courageous and did an exceptional job. And again, there's a profession that there are some quite a few rotten apples in, and you know a few questionable ethics. So great to see someone who who was fighting the good fight, really. Mm. This story, I think, touches on a bigger issue for our nation as well. We've talked about trauma, and people often think about trauma in relation to individuals. But there's another part of your life that clearly seems to be a value in terms of uplifting Māori culture. Uh, Your wife, Emma, is wonderful. It'll be a big part of your children's lives. In your interaction with the prisons, because you've honed in on two stories here, but there's the biggest story of New Zealand prisons. In your interaction with the story of New Zealand prisons, how much do you see a cultural trauma playing out? Massively, and that's a very good point. And I think we put it in the story in the the number, I think it's 68%, was it? A frightening number of women in, in Auckland Women's Prison, which is 
you know, the biggest by a mile, um, 400 odd people, most of them are Māori, you know, like so it's 50 odd percent prisons generally and close to close to 70% of the female prison population is Māori. Now, come on, what is that about? You can't tell me that, oh, they've just been doing the crimes. I mean, that, that, that is systematic institutional racism from woe to go. And you, you can prove it in, in, in the terms of who gets stopped, who gets prosecuted, what the outcomes are. It's not a coincidence. And so that, that's a massive part of, of that. Now, I also didn't set out to go, oh, let's, let's find a story to, to illustrate that point. Mm. Um, it just happens that a lot of the people who um, end up in these situations in New Zealand are Māori. I've done a story uh, recently about Shagan Stevens, who was shot by a police in, in 2016, and I've been um, digging into the circumstances of that. <sighs> you know, unfortunately, a lot of people who end up in the rough end of the justice system are Māori, and so I think you'd be you'd be foolish to to say that that's not playing a part in, in, in all this. Um, it absolutely is. Yeah, I'd agree. I have a bit of interaction with one of our gangs here in New Zealand and have talked with someone who's taking a number of these guys through um, programs dealing with trauma, addiction, suicide, depression, uh, relationships, and reflecting on the guy who's leading some of that with them, he talked about how every single one of the men have some sort of, I won't mention what type of trauma, just to respect them, but a rather significant type of trauma in their childhood, 100% of our gang members. So coming at it with a punitive approach is, is not going to solve that problem. And it's my belief, and you can reflect on this if you like, whether I'm off track or not, is that it goes back to a lot of our early history here in New Zealand, reading Vincent O'Malley's book about the Waikato Wars and seeing what was a solid, uh, productive people being pushed out of the Waikato and into the king country, into poverty and disease, and then assuming that that's not going to have a lasting impact seems ridiculous to me. Oh, I totally agree. And I know that some people roll their eyes and go, oh, this was all a couple of hundred years ago. But, you know, I mean, even in practical terms, surely people can understand that. I mean, if you take someone's land entirely and take their resources away from them and then you suppress their culture and, and their language you'd actually be a moron, in my view, to believe that that's not going to have an impact. Mm. I mean, let's just talk about it in resources for a start. I mean, while a lot of New Zealand families, they pass the wealth down, you know, it might not be massive, but it, it, it's a, it might be a house, it might be a farm, you know, these resources are, are passed down, and there's wealth, not huge wealth often, but there is some wealth to draw on. Can I borrow some money for the house? Can you know? Can I can I borrow some money for the car? All those things often are built on you know some generations of wealth. So surely people can understand that. And look, this is a blink of an eye mm. in our country, isn't it? What is it? One hundred and seventy, one hundred and eighty years um, since the treaty was signed. I mean, in world history terms, that, that that's a blink of an eye. So this stuff isn't way back in some distant past. That's only that's only um, about three quite old people's lifetimes, yeah. isn't it? Really, yeah. you're talking about ancestors that people would be able to name directly in their family line. Yeah, absolutely. So I know people 
roll their eyes and say, oh, you know, um, well, this is a long time ago. Why shouldn't we all just um, get on and, and, and live? And look, it's it's great that we can to the extent that we do, but it would be it would be, it would be foolish to, to not look at the reasons why some of these things are happening. And we are doing that as a nation, aren't we? Mm. Um, not perfectly and maybe too slowly. Um, and... It's not linear, like, you know, you can go backwards and there, there's sometimes there's a, a reaction to that and there'll be all that. But I think we are starting at least to it to address it. So mm. I think that's good. Now, this clearly lights you up, this, this, this particular issue. And you've done a lot to promote te reo in New Zealand and to bring that into your workspace, Te Ao. Why? There's a woman involved. <laughs> <laughs> She's a wonderful yeah, woman. Yeah, uh, my wife Emma. When I met and 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 then married her, and and then when we had our daughter uh, Nico, who's uh, seven now, I made a decision then that well, we made a decision that that we wanted her to have her language, and she goes to a Rumaki school, uh, an immersion school. So she speaks Maori. She, she says to me, "Oh, we do English on Fridays." Oh, that's 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 cool. So she <laughs> she speaks English on a Friday at school, and the rest of it's Maori. And so she will have her language, and she does have her language, and she learns about her culture, and that's something that we wanted to give to her. And I thought, well, gee, I don't want to be left out of this too. You know, I want to be able to to speak uh, her language with her as she grows older. And so I thought, oh, I better hit the books and 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 get into that. So in about 2017, I started to look at Scotty Morrison and Stacey Morrison's books. They are good friends of ours. Māori made easy. Māori book made one and easy. Two. Yeah, the Green yeah. Book. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> I know it. Yeah, or, or, or someone said uh, Māori made less hard. <laughs> it's not. Not easy when you know I was like I don't know forty six or seven when when I started learning and there's a few cobwebs in the, in the old uh, brain by that point um, so it isn't easy um, but it's fun and it's cool and it's interesting and it changes your thinking so I think the approach I wanted to take to it too and the Morrisons are fantastic like mm. this is is not to smash people over the head with it I'm just tried to weave it into to our broadcasts and this is a few years ago now um, you know started doing that 2017 2018 on on when I was hosting Morning Report on mm. on Radio New Zealand on RNZ yeah, and tried to weave it into into that and into my life and I I'm still learning I still go to a class I mean I'm still not I'm you know. I can hold a conversation, but I'm not. I'm not a. Um, I'm not a great speaker, but I. I love the language, and I'm. I'm still learning it. And um, yeah, I just think it's cool. It's. Um, it's New Zealand, you know. So thinking through the journey of diving into a Maori worldview, uh, learning the language. This isn't just about learning a couple of words, because language and culture go together. So it's diving into a whole new world now. I don't know about you, but as a Pākehā male, I'm used to being relatively in control and knowing what I'm talking about and having other people turning my way. So what's that journey been like for you, stepping into a world where you're not the expert? I think that's uh, a big part of it, exactly what what you're hitting on there. I mean, I I went into it um, with a fairly big ego. I'd been on, you know, I'd, I'd held quite high positions in TV and, you know, and, and done journalism for a long time and and um, was a sort of semi-public figure. And I think it's exactly what you say. You, you turn up and you don't know. You can't even understand what's going on. You don't know the songs. You don't know the tikanga. You don't, you aren't the big guy. You, you're at the bottom. And I reckon that's a big part of that. That's a great experience. Mm-hmm. It really is, you know. And then you're going, well, you get a glimpse of what it feels like 
to actually be the person who isn't in control, mm. who is struggling to understand and having to fit into someone else's world. Now, there are a lot of people like that in New Zealand. It's not only Māori, but that has been the plight that we have enforced on, on many. So... To go to go and do that is is a is a big part of it. It's quite it's quite humbling, mm. and I think that that's a good a really good thing. You know, see what it's like. Yeah, how has that helped your storytelling? Because when we come to the story of like Mihi Bassett, for instance, surely that has to have had an impact. Then, yeah, I think I think it has. Life's funny like that, isn't it? Like, is it serendipity or is it subconscious? Like, I haven't set out to do this this stuff but I kind of had gravitating towards it and so often this stuff is driven by subconscious I don't wake up in the morning and go I'm going to find a story about a Māori has been done by or whatever and in fact in some ways I I, I don't do that at all but once you unpick it retrospectively you think oh well maybe I if I hadn't done this I didn't have that knowledge if I hadn't made those connections I wouldn't have ended up in that place so it's probably just a little bit less on the surface, and maybe a little bit more, I don't know, subterranean maybe. Mm. How do you maintain hope? And how do you maintain grounding in your life when you're faced with stories like this that could so easily just make you feel despondent about the world? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, when when you can see change and when you can when you can hope for change – then that keeps you going. And when you still have the fire to go, this isn't right, this isn't right, I'm going to at least put it out there so people can make a decision or you know, that, that we have to then wrestle with. Because in some ways we just put it on the plate, don't we, on the, and say to the public, are you happy with this? And they weren't. You know, They couldn't walk by that. You know, I had people going, this isn't, can't be New Zealand. You know, mm. That They thought that this was happening in, in some country, you know, overseas. They couldn't believe when they saw the headline for that story. Gassed in their cells, begging for food at Auckland Women's Prison. What? Mm. Is that good enough? No. And so we did change it. Um, and I guess you're driven by the idea that, gee, if I put this out, surely someone's going to care about it. And um, sometimes it's a triumph of hope over experience, <laughs> but you do keep going. And I'm fired up mm. about my journalism. I mean, I'm, I'm 50 now. Um, I'm, I think I'm doing the most important journalism I've done. You know, I worked in Parliament for 15 years, but I, I, I think the stuff I'm doing now is is really important, and I've got a passion for it. So, I, I, so I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm not giving up. Yeah, and I, I, I want to affirm that because we'll always have journalists in Parliament telling those stories and digging up the dirt and telling us what we need to be taking notice of in terms of what's going on in government. But these stories here, they're not necessarily going to get told. The only reason I know this exists, the only reason I now know that that was going on in our prisons, was because you took notice and you told the story. That's that's a, a really good point because I, I I looked back sometimes at Parliament and went, if I hadn't been there, would these stories have been told anyway? And often the answer is, yeah, they would have been. Someone would have done them. And and I think, where am I going to add value? Mm. You know, and it's interesting, like in journalism, the trajectory of journalism and what we um, do and what we elevate. And the the sort of model career is if you become a presenter, then you hang on to that for the rest of your life. That's the pinnacle. 
you know, and you, you're the presenter and you get your name on the show and your voice or your face is known and that's the big thing and that's what everyone wants. But what we're doing is we're elevating people out of the actual reporting so that you're, that you're leaving that to the ones who haven't got as much experience. And mm. some of them may be very good. In fact, I'm amazed at um, some of the, the young, younger reporters that I have worked with at Radio New Zealand and elsewhere as well. But what I'm saying is there's nothing wrong with having a few years on the clock. Mm. And um, if you've been around a bit actually just doing the reporting, then that's actually pretty good. And I think we've got the the model a bit the wrong way around in, in, in journalism in New Zealand, and we try to promote and pay and the mana that we give to the presenters is, I can understand that, but in terms of the, the richness of the actual reporting, of trying to find out what's going on, it's no shame to have a few grey hairs and be doing that. Oh I yeah, think. that experience yeah. goes a long way, which probably brings us to the question about the future of journalism, because there are so many people who have left over the last number of years. When you think about the future of journalism with so much experience under your belt, what do you see coming? Well, I'm I'm hopeful. And if you'd asked me that about four years ago, I would have given a much different answer. I was pretty pessimistic. I was pretty dark about this. And, and I'll tell you a quick story um, from an unlikely source in this conversation, I suppose. Julia Gillard, the former Australian Prime Minister, I interviewed her for The Listener once when I was writing profiles for them. I, I, I've stopped doing that now. But she said, oh, look, it's a bit like the clothing industry. I thought, oh, where's this going to go? And she said, oh, yeah, no, when, when they took the tariffs off Australian clothes, there was this big race to, to the bottom where everyone tried to compete with the cheap imports coming in. And so they started mass producing this crappy stuff and then people didn't want that either and a whole lot of organisations fell over or companies in that case fell over. And then the Australian designers realised that they would go higher end and that that's where their niche value would be added. Mm. And she said that she thought something similar would happen with the media. And I think it is, I think she's right. And I think we are seeing that. And I think that we are seeing independent news sites, even even Newsroom and the spin-off and, and others, even and what, what you're doing. I mean, you've got an audience, you know what you're doing, and, and you're pushing for that. And that's a good thing, rather than this idea that we'll just do a race to the bottom and give everyone crap because that's what they want to see. Mm. Look at what stuff's doing. I mean, that's a massive and courageous change. The Herald's trying to do something similar, different, but, but on that same trajectory. And I think people are realising that people want information and want quality. And I think that the sort of post-truth um, world that Trump tried to um, usher in in America and also the dangers of misinformation that you can see um, with something like COVID-19, people realise that they need good information and it is a public good. And so you're seeing the government having to come on board too and, and put more money into this, which I think is good. So for, for all those reasons, I'm pretty hopeful uh, about the future of New Zealand journalism. And just to circle back to a comment I made briefly earlier, I'm also hopeful because <laughs> the young ones are doing some pretty amazing stuff. Yeah, yeah. And they're having to come in uh, to the industry now where you've got to be able to do everything and they're excited about it. And I think because there's not a lot of glamour in it, because the job security isn't necessarily there like it might have been once, they're coming in because it's a calling, because they feel compelled to do this. It's in their, in their bones. Just to close up, 
you've got some podcasts going on at the moment. You've had Ninth Floor, you've had The Service, Red Line is coming out. And having seen the promo, first podcast just released, tell us about your podcasting world. Yeah, well, Red Line, I made it with uh, John Daniel, and the two of us made The Service together about spies in the um, Cold War and the KGB in New Zealand. And then we thought after that, we thought, well, gee, um, maybe the CCP in China is kind of doing that today, right now. We should get into this. And so we did. And it, it was a hard journey because it's a complex subject in a culture that we don't understand that well. And so there were a lot of barriers, but we've made what I think is is, is pretty fascinating uh, podcast and a really important issue. I mean, New Zealand has jumped into this massive economic reliance on China meaning that we are really struggling to understand what they want, what they are um, trying to do, what influence they they may have over New Zealand. And so this seeks to unpack some of that, some of the history, some of the influence campaigns. There's a bit of, bit of spy stuff for sort of spy fans, um, but there's a lot of different perspectives on how we should treat China as an opportunity and potentially in some in some ways as a threat but also underpinning it is a call to try and understand this culture better if if we are going to have such a close relationship with them. So mm. that that's the basis of it. Mm. Well, I'd encourage people to jump on and listen to Redline. Guy, and as someone who started up Media Chaplaincy a number of years ago, at that stage where you would have been feeling despondent, we could see <laughs> that, that that space was just needing a bit of care and support. So to sit here and chat after watching your career for so long and admiring what you do, I uh, really appreciate it. So thank you. Thanks very much for the opportunity. Enjoyed it. Thank you for sharing your story and heart. Radio New Zealand, for hosting this series. And thank you for listening. If you appreciate what we're doing here, please give this podcast a five-star rating and send it to someone else who might find it valuable. Make sure to follow to catch future episodes. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio and more. At Media Chaplaincy New Zealand, we believe in the value of our media, so we offer free, independent and confidential support for media professionals. If you know someone who works in the media industry, please encourage them to get in touch. We'd love to take them out for a coffee, on us of course, and provide space for a confidential chat with someone who gets it. Head to mediachaplaincy.nz to find out more. Until next time, ka kite. 